Take your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. This is the last week that we're going to be in the book of Hebrews. I thought there might be some groans out there. Apparently that's okay with you. All right, it's the last week. We're in the book of Hebrews, and here's what I want to tell you, all right? This is a final chapter, and it is a rapid-fire lightning round. In fact, um, as I've worked through the sermon this week, one of the things that I've attempted to do is to not make this feel disjointed. Not make this feel like it's just jumping from one thing to another. Because if you read the book of Hebrews chapter 13, it is one instruction after another. In fact... This is very practical advice. And it's just one thing of advice after another, one thing of advice after another. And um, it's so much so that I'm going to today, normally a lot of times I will read the passage of Scripture and then we'll pull out truths out of it and we'll give you points. The thing is, once I read a verse of Scripture, you're going to know what the point is. Okay? This isn't going to be one of those sermons you're going to go, I do not understand how Lyle got that. Because it's going to be like right there, all right? So, I mean, it's going to tell us to, to flee certain things, to not do other things. It's going to tell us to continue to do certain actions. And the reason is, we have to remember that the book of Hebrews is more than likely a sermon in a letter. And so this is the what do I do with everything I've just been told stuff. He covers things that he thinks is important to maintaining a vibrant walk of faith. That if you're going to endure, that if you're going, as we've talked about all week, to hold fast, to not give all this sermon series, to not give up because Jesus is better, what does that look like on a practical level? And so it's just a list of resolutions, a list of commandments, a list of do's and don'ts. Jonathan Edwards, as a young man, made 70 resolutions that would govern his life. And we could do worse than to make Hebrews 13 our list of resolutions. It is really practical advice. I read this week about a preacher who, when he was a young college student, had a chance to preach at a tiny congregation and was preaching about loving our enemies. And he asked, how many of you have hard time forgiving your enemies? And everybody in the congregation raised their hand except for one older lady. Being a small church, having conversations back and forth with one another, he said, ma'am, you don't have a hard time forgiving your enemies? And she said very sweetly, I don't have any enemies. He said, well, how old are you? And she said, 93. And he thought, Man, this is an opportunity right here. Practical advice from someone that has lived to 93 years old and doesn't have any enemies. So the preacher said, how is it that a person that lived to 93 years old cannot have a single enemy in the world? She said out loud, I outlived all those old hags. (laughs) Now, Now, that may not be good practical advice, all right? I want to ask how many of you have already done that, all right? But I think what we're going to read today is good practical advice. But one thing that's important I want us to think about, and this isn't going to be on the screen, so if you've got your Bibles, I want you to, to have them open there. If you don't have a, a Bible with you, maybe there's probably an app on your phone that you can use or a Bible right in front of you. What's important to realize is Hebrews chapter 13 comes directly after verses 28 and 29 of chapter 12. 
And in chapter 12, verse 28, it says, Let us be grateful receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That was the point last week. And as we do, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. In the original writing of this, there's no chapter break. There's no chapter 12 to chapter 13. So one statement flows right out of another. And so what chapter 13 is, is how we live out our acceptance of what Christ has done for us with reverence and with awe. This is the thing that we're supposed to do when we come an understanding of what Christ has done for us. That understanding the gospel fills us with a sense of wonder and worship that makes us want to obey. The commands of God are like railroad tracks that point you in the direction to go. But the gospel is the engine that moves us along those tracks to keep us moving in the direction we're supposed to go. And if we're not enraptured, if we're not in love with Christ and what he's done for us, then what you hear today is going to be very, very difficult to do. If you're attempting to do what we're going to talk about in Hebrews chapter 13 in your own strength, it's going to be impossible to accomplish. The way you gain power is to know the gospel better and to understand Jesus better and what he's done for us. Someone has says the fire to do in the Christian life comes only from being soaked in the fuel of what has already been done through Jesus. And so chapter 13, we're going to read almost the entire chapter. And in chapter 13, he's going to give us some very specific applications. And the first one is that we, if we're going to follow Christ, if we're going to do what God calls us to do, if we're going to live in honor and reverence and awe of him, if we're going to worship him in our daily lives, it may not be the first thing you think about. It's the first thing the writer says. We've got to learn to practice hospitality. Look at chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed guests, welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Now, here's the thing. In the Greek, there's a play on words that you miss in English. He says, let us continue in brotherly love and let us not neglect hospitality. In the original language, those two words are, let us continue brotherly love, Philadelphia. You ever heard that word? Philadelphia, right? City of brotherly love. Let us continue brotherly love. And then he says, do not neglect philozenia. Now, Here's the thing, you may not have heard that phrase before, but when we talk about being afraid of those that are outside of somewhere, we talk about xenophobia. And so philoxenia means love to those that aren't like us, to strangers. And so there's a play on word, keep loving one another and don't forget to love those outside of the church. He's talking about love that starts in the church and overflows outside the church into the streets. It's not just let's take care of one another. It's not about us four and no more. It's not about the bunker mentality of a church that says the world outside of us is growing cold and dark. Let us get together and huddle around and love one another. But nor is it we love outsiders. We're taking for granted each other inside of this place. 
Throughout history, this kind of love is the distinctive, especially in the early church, that marked a spirit-filled, God-honoring church. In fact, a persecutor of Christians, a guy named Emperor Julian, said in a complaint in a famous letter he wrote, Nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of the Christians as their charity to strangers. These godless Galileans provide for not only their own poor, but ours as well. One of the tragedies of the modern day American Christianity is that people somehow have gotten the idea that to be a Christian means that you don't have to love the people that are different than you. That believe differently, that act differently, that look differently. People that are outside the faith. Now, I know if I walked into your Sunday school class today and said, is it okay not to love people that are different than us? You would say, no, that is not okay. But yet, when you watch the way we argue, when you watch the way our rhetoric comes out, it appears that we've made that okay. You show me a place where the gospel is really at work, and I'll show you a place characterized by graciousness, patience, love for both of those inside and out. This past week on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, I was um, a part of a group of pastors. Jeff and I were a part of a group of pastors that went to um, Denver, Colorado. And the North American Mission Board toured us around seeing what church planters are doing in the area. It was kind of neat because uh, there was a very Tennessee flavor to what was happening in Denver. And I don't mean just people like to wear orange out there because of the Broncos, all right? Um the, the host pastor was a, is a guy named Ben Mandrell. And Ben Mandrell was the pastor of Inglewood Baptist Church in Jackson, Tennessee. He was the pastor that followed my father-in-law as the pastor of that church. And felt called by the Lord to go to Denver to start a church. He's got a guy that's planting another church underneath his um, church. They're sending him out already into a place of Denver. And he was the young adult pastor at Bellevue Baptist Church in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. He was the first pastor we met. The second one we met just left Long Hollow Baptist Church. You ever heard of that church? Anybody ever heard of that? Uh, oh, right down the street, as their missions pastor, he's now in Boulder, Colorado, planting a church for the glory of God. And so we were meeting all these people. And so it was interesting because we were talking about the lostness of Denver. And by estimates that you look out there, if you take away a couple of places on the outside suburbs of Denver that are kind of places where Christian organizations have headquartered, so they skew the numbers a little bit. If you take those out, then anywhere around in Denver, about 92 to 93% are lost. 92 to 93%. The closer you get to the city center, the higher that number goes. We were talking to a pastor that's planting in the urban core of Denver. There is one evangelical church for every 50,000 people in Denver. We went across what looked like, what looked like about a mile and a half from one church to another. That was the only two Southern Baptist churches in the core of Denver. And in that mile and a half gap, there are somewhere around 300 to 400,000 people. And so we're talking to these church planners and we say, how do you break through? In Boulder, Colorado, where Parker Manuel, the one I mentioned that just left Long Hollow in June, is planting a church. In Boulder, Colorado, 43 churches have been planted in the last 10 years, and 42 of them failed. 
How do you do it? How do you break through in a place where the gospel, where God's word, where God's message is not being heard? They said it's simple. We love our neighbors. We practice hospitality. We host people in our home. We show them we're not weird. That we're okay. We love on them. We help them. One of the church plants that we talked to is a guy named Chris Phillips. He was the recreation leader at Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis. And as we were talking to him, he was telling us about one of the things that people in Denver have a real problem with is finding place to meet as a church. Because um, real estate there is really expensive. And they just don't have places where churches meet. And so even school system, well here, when you plant a church, if you plant a church in most parts of the country, what you do is you look for a school that lets you meet in their gym. But in Colorado, the laws are such, and the people and the people in positions of power are such, that they believe that allowing a church to meet in their place on Sunday morning is a violation of church and state. That's not, according to the law, but they think it is, and so they don't let people meet there. And Chris Phillips was telling me they're about uh, nine months away from launching. They're planning to launch next August. And he, uh, his kids are in an elementary school. He's in a community that's building about 6,000 homes in the next nine months. And they're building an elementary school for it while they're building the homes. The average age in that community is 32 years old. And while they're building those homes, they're building the elementary school. The elementary school's meeting in the top floor of a high school. And they've just been practicing hospitality with the teachers. And he said about a week ago, the principal of that school came to him and said, Chris, I'm just wondering, where are y'all going to meet when y'all start your church? And he said, we don't have a place. We're trusting God. And she said, we would be honored if you would consider meeting in our school. Simple hospitality. New Testament scholar Bill Lane says that the author's purpose here is to show that hospitality is a kind of sacrament. Meaning that by doing it with others, you are doing it directly to Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 25 that on the last day when he'll look at some of the church and say, When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. And the people he's talking to are like, "Uh, I don't really remember that, Jesus. I don't remember showing up and... Asking for anything and you asking us for anything. I'm sure I would have remembered it, Jesus, if you would have been there. And he says, you know this, right? As you did it, what? Until the least of these, you did it to me. The same points being reinforced here in verse 2. Showing hospitality is a way of responding directly to Jesus. We need to be willing to open our homes to our neighbors, to those that aren't like us. To people that don't believe like we believe. We need to be willing to show love in the community. We need to be willing to show people that the love of Christ extends beyond the walls of this church. We need to be willing to practice hospitality. Verse 3, he kind of continues this whole thing of hospitality, but he moves it in a different direction. He says, remember those who are in prisons. Now, specifically there, brothers and sisters in Christ who were there for persecution as though in prison with them. Remember that. This is not charity where you give money to them, but you take their pain upon yourself like you were with them. And remember those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Feel the pain of those mistreated as if you were own body. We've been told that the body of Christ involves members of different kinds and a variety of looks and causes and people. 
And then we think about the body of Christ, we're thinking about an eternal, large body. But even as we think about that, we think about those people in our world that are living for Christ, that are being persecuted for their faith. And as we think about the body mentality, we can't say, well, that's happening to them over there. It doesn't impact me. If your arm was on fire, your brain would not look at that and say, well, that's too bad. Good luck on that arm. Right? If you look down at your arm and it's on fire, what do you think? We're on fire, like all of us, right? That's how we're to feel about the suffering members of the church. The World Evangelical Alliance reports that 200 million Christians are currently being persecuted in 131 of the world's 193 countries. About 176,000 were killed last year. 80% of all religious violence in the world was carried out against Christians last year. We're to feel it. We're not to turn a deaf ear toward it. We're to pray for them. Our belief in the gospel is demonstrated how we treat other people because our salvation was in a sense God's hospitality to us when God saved Israel this is what he said God executes justice for the fatherless and widow and loves the stranger providing him with food and clothing therefore you must love the stranger for you were strangers in the land of Egypt that's Deuteronomy chapter 10 verses 17 through 19 Israel was the outcast and God took them in the same is true for us We were the outcast and Jesus took us in at the cost of his own blood. So we spend resources on the outsider. We turn strangers into guests and friends and ultimately brothers and sisters because that's what he did for us. It's our way of serving Jesus. One of my favorite stories in the life of David is one that doesn't get preached on a whole lot. But it's the um, partly because I think people have a hard time saying his name. Mephibosheth, this one that had some infirmity. And David won't allow him to be cast out. David says, he will eat at my table. First Baptist, this ought to be something that's distinctive about us. That when people look at First Baptist Goodlessville, one of the things they say is, I may not agree with everything they teach. I may not believe in the God they believe in. But one thing we cannot deny is they know how to treat other people. Tony Campolo was in Hawaii and it had jet lag late at night. It was three o'clock in the morning and so he was hungry and he went for a walk. And the only thing he could find open was a late night restaurant bar. So he sits down and he overhears two women talking in the booth next to him. And they were both women of the night. One complained about her birthday the next day. She had never celebrated. So Tony sitting there at three o'clock in the morning, jet lag, eating, stinks. I'm going to throw her a party. So he decides to throw a party here on the next night with her friends and some people he could round up. And so the next night they had a party and the prostitutes overwhelmed. She says, no one has ever made me a cake before. She asks if she cannot cut it, but take it home. She gets so overwhelmed that she wants to call a friend. While she's out, Tony asks everyone to pray for her, And the person there at the restaurant says, I didn't know you were a preacher. What church do you belong to? And Tony says, I'm the kind of. I belong to the kind of church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. The guy at the restaurant says, no, you don't, because there's not a church like that. If there was, I'd join it. Our hospitality is our most persuasive argument for the gospel. So let me give you some practical application. Get involved. 
Most of you in this, in, most of you in this room are involved in a small group. You're involved in a Sunday school class. Take care of one another. But then, in that Sunday school class, ask, how can we take care of someone else in the city? How can we take care of someone at Goodlettsville Elementary or Goodlettsville Middle? Madison Creek Elementary, Greenbrier Elementary. How can we take care of a group of people at Mason's Motel? How can we take care of people that are in need? The first practical thing he says is practice hospitality. Secondly, he says, avoid immorality. Practice hospitality, avoid immorality. Verse 4. Marriage is to be honored by all. And the marriage bed must be kept undefiled because God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterers. That almost seems like sexually immoral and adulterer seems redundant, but adulterates mean to be married and have sex outside of it. Sexually immoral is a word that means to not be married and to have sex outside of it. God doesn't take it lightly. And here's what I want you to notice. The first two things he talks about are Christians' love for the poor and their sexual purity. That's what makes the church distinctive. Augustine wrote a book called The City of God, and he said that Christians don't fit well in this world because they have a completely different attitude towards sex and money than the world, which are two of the most important things to people in the world. He said people in the world are promiscuous with their beds and stingy with their money. Christians are stingy with their beds and promiscuous with their money. That's pretty good, isn't it? Almost like it was written a couple of thousand years ago, because it was almost to then. So to be a Christian means that you can't be a follower of Christ truly and not care about the poor. But it also means that you can't be a Christian and claim you don't care about holiness. Some love family values but don't seem to care about the poor. Some love the poor but don't seem to care about holiness. True followers of Jesus care about both. And we live in a world that a lot of people think that are teaching on Sexuality is a stumbling block to the world of hearing the message of Christ. It makes people mad. It makes people uncomfortable. People say, just serve the poor. Don't worry about all the marriage ethic. Don't worry about the sexual immorality. Just serve the poor. Take care of people. Just love on people. And then everything will be okay. And I would say to that, amen, we should be serving the poor. Amen, we should be loving on people. But just because something makes somebody mad doesn't mean we don't stand on the truth of it. This isn't a new thing. This may seem like a stretch to some of you, but John the Baptist had his head cut off by Herod for preaching against open marriage. Jesus didn't say, John, you messed up if you just stuck to love and peace, the evils of greed and the need for racial reconciliation and recycling. You probably would have won over Herod's heart. Jesus called John the greatest prophet who ever lived. To follow Jesus' example means that you will speak against sexual sin and you will serve the poor. Not to mention that one of the single greatest contributors to poverty in our country is the sexual immorality that is rampant. Followers of Jesus rarely fit well into political categories because followers of Jesus don't take their cues from political parties. At least they shouldn't. They take their cues from Jesus. Which is why we're called followers of Jesus. And Jesus taught us to love the poor like he did and to be holy like he was. Thirdly, flee materialism. Some of you just put your hand on your wallet. 
Verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. The command is to be content. Be content. I love this makes us top four list. There are only four things we're going to talk about today. And one of the top four is contentment. The power to be content comes from two places. First of all, we have a promise from God that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And the Greek in verse 5 literally says, I will never ever leave you nor I will never, never, never forsake you. In Greek, there are five negatives in that. That's not a double negative. That's a five-time negative. In Greek, there are five ways that it says, never will he leave us. If you have God, there's nothing really else that you need or that can be deprived from you that would devastate you. The one who has God and nothing else on earth doesn't really have that much less than the one who has God and everything else. If you've got God and nothing, you've got just as much as God and everything. Because all that matters in the equation is God. And not only do we have that he won't forsake us, he won't leave us. It also tells us that he's our helper. He says the Lord who loved you wouldn't let you death or hell cross. Keep him from rescuing us. He has gone across every bridge imaginable. He has gone across every chasm imaginable and comes and says, I am here to serve and to help. Charles Spurgeon said, listen to the voice of the Lord speak. I will help you. It's a small thing for me, your God, to help you. Consider what I've already done. What? Not help you? I bought you with my blood. What? Not help you? I died for you. Since I have done for that, will I not do lesser things for you? As well. God has already proved his willingness to help us. So two questions that come out of that. Are you content with what you have, with where you are, with what's going on in your life? A poll in 2011 revealed that 84% of Americans say they are content where they are. That sounds good, right? But another poll taken in the same year revealed that the number one concern Americans have is they don't have enough money. Now, you can't have it both ways, right? I'm content with what I've got, but my number one concern is I ain't got enough. Most of you, if I ask you how many of you are fairly content, you'd raise your hands. But I've also asked you, if your salary got raised 15% more next year, would your financial problems be over? Most of you'd say, oh man, that'd be great. Contentment is understanding that in Christ, you can be satisfied with exactly what you have. Because in Christ, you have all that you need. Secondly, not only are you content, but are you confident? What does your life look like? If someone were to map the emotional journey of your life in the last three months, would it look slow and steady or would it look like a roller coaster ride? I have four kids and one of them is a little bit of what we call a drama queen. Now, I love them all dearly. But we literally have one that will tell us at one moment that it is the greatest day of her life and then something doesn't go her way and it's the worst day that has ever happened. This happened yesterday. We went and we're going to have a good time and we went and rode go-karts. And she got to drive one, a kitty cart. It was the greatest day ever. 
And then she didn't get the seat she wanted in the car. It's the worst day I've ever had. Aren't you glad as adults we grow out of all that stuff? Don't comment on your spouse at this moment, all right? We serve an unchanging God. And when you are up and down with the emotions and the the circumstances of your life, you are showing that you do not understand the nature of our unchanging God. He is a never-changing, never-ending, always-going love. And His presence for those of you that are in Christ is promised always. If you understand Jesus as your sufficiency, as your helper, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Life may go up and down, but you don't ride with it. In our world, there's this whole thing of, of the fear of missing out, FOMO. And guys are, and girls are constantly afraid of, man, I'm missing something. I'm not going to get that. People are worried. Maybe I could fit this in and that in and this in and that in. But here's the truth. If I'm confident in Jesus as my sufficiency and my helper, I can do the things I need to do and not worry about what I'm not getting to do. Because I'm honoring Him with my life. So the first three are... Practice hospitality, flee sexual immorality, and flee materialism. And here's the last one. Honor the church. What follows in these verses are a set of ways you should relate to your church and your church should relate to you. In fact, these are kind of the the criteria I would give. If people are looking, maybe they've moved to another community. Somebody says, hey, I'm looking for a church. What should I be looking for? When people come and ask me, why should I choose your church? It's because I believe we try, we attempt to do the things that it says in here. And I just want to tell you, it's going to be a little awkward here for a couple of minutes because the writer of Hebrews tells them to do things in honor of their leadership, in honor of their pastors. And when you're the pastor telling the people to honor you, that's a little weird, all right? So just hear these words as instructions from Scripture, not necessarily Lyle saying it. Because I'm reading Scripture here. Verse 7. Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you. As you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. My prayer, my, my desire is to be a pastor that leads honorably, both in my life and in my words and in my actions. And so I hope that I'm the kind of pastor that you can look to, not perfect in any way, not infallible in any way, but that you could look and say, you know what? The pastor believes what he says. He means it when he talks about Scripture. It means something to him. When he calls us to sacrifice, when he calls us to look into the future, it comes from a place of doing what God wants us to do. That he cares about us, that he cares about our church, but he also cares about the lost. When I say to be hospitable, that I would be hospitable, that I would be welcoming to people. I just want to tell you that, that some of that, as we grow, and we are growing, or the second service we have is seeing visitors every week come. And it gets almost difficult to be able to do that appropriately in the way that we should. About five, six years ago, I could tell you every person that had visited our church on a Sunday morning because we didn't have but one or two every month. We now have about four new ones every week. Sometimes seeing that and making sure it happens is difficult. So we're working to figure out how do we do that better? How do we live that out better? Secondly, in the midst of this, he also talks about the message that you're preaching. He says, Jesus Christ, it's the same yesterday and today and forever. 
Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good to be the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. He says, evaluate the church's message by the gospel. Notice what the author says here. There has been one primary message for all of Christian history, Jesus. And Jesus doesn't change. Fads change. People's opinions change. But Jesus doesn't. Churches are different. Every church is not the same. It's like the old saying about people, that if two people are exactly the same, one of them is unnecessary. Churches are like that. We're different. We have different flavors. We have different ways. We do different things. A lot of times it's about the spiritual gifts that are within inside of it. Some churches it's all about how God wants to bless and prosper you. Some churches it's all about rules. Some churches it's always hyperaction steps. Some is about a different slant on theology. Some is about social justice or racial reconciliation. And many of those things are great. Many of those things are good. But the center of what I want our church to be about is simple. It's one word. It is one message. And that is Jesus. The same yesterday, today, and forever. That's why what's written on our wall out in the hallway is that we exist. The reason we're here, the whole purpose of our being is to glorify God. Now the way we do that is leading people to become passionately devoted followers of Jesus. The one thing that I pray will always be true about our message and our ministry is that it is primarily about the glory of Jesus, of who he is and what he's done. So if you're looking at a church, if you're a part of our church, if people say, why do you go to that church? Hopefully part of the reason that you go to this church, hopefully part of the reason you are drawn to this church is because we are a church that preaches, that talks about, that looks at, that tries to understand who Jesus is and what he's done. Now look at this is interesting as well, because it's not just about the message of Jesus, it's taking the actions of Jesus. Verse 12 says it this way. Therefore... Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go out to him outside the camp, bearing his disgrace. For we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come. Two dimensions here the author is pointing out. First of all, that Jesus was crucified crucified outside of religious and political camps. He was rejected by both the secular and religious establishments. So it shouldn't surprise you when that happens to us either. The other implication is that Jesus is going outside the camp is that he voluntarily left the palaces of power to seek and to save the lost. His was not a grab for power or an attempt to maintain the status quo. He left power and privilege to save the lost. And the question I ask for us as a church is, are we going outside the camp to the lost? Jesus had one mission. He tells us in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, that I have come to what? To seek and to save the lost that's why i am constantly thinking about how to reach outside these walls and i'm more convinced than ever that if we keep doing what we've keep been doing we will not reach the people we need to reach i've told you this before as it came upon my 10-year anniversary that if we do church in the next 10 years like we did in the previous 10 years we will be ineffective Now, I'm not talking about the centrality of the message of Jesus. I'm not talking about changing any of the basic beliefs we have. I'm talking about the methods in which we employ in order to reach people outside the camp. We want to keep ministering to and loving our city. 
I in no way want this to become a comfortable country club for Christians. I want it to be a dispatch place for ministry to the city. I love the words of a missionary to China, C.T. Studd. Isn't that a good name for a missionary? He was such a stud, all right? Listen to what he says. Some people want to live in the sound of chapel bells. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Jesus' ministry was outside the camp. He was a friend of sinners, the bane of the religious establishment. Are we engaged with the poor? Do you know lost people? Someone has said, if you died tomorrow and we did your funeral and only church people showed up, how could you call yourself a friend of sinners? Another way to ask that is, what lost person is showing up at your funeral? Are you going on mission trips? Are you praying for missionaries? Are you sending funds to people that are on the front lines, literally right there within a yard of hell? This week, as uh, we were in Denver, um, on Monday night we got there and they... They, uh, the North American Mission Board apparently thinks that all pastors need to be on a super healthy, low-calorie diet. We showed up on Monday night, and on my plate was just a wedge of salad. Like, it looked like they just cut up a lettuce head and stuck it on my plate. And then we had very little food, and so after it was over, Jeff and I thought, we need a little something extra. So we left the hotel and we walked around downtown Denver to find somewhere to just grab a bite to eat. And I want to tell you something. When we walked out that hotel from the Southern Baptist North American Mission Board preacher meeting to the streets of downtown Denver, we walked into a different world. And as we walked down those streets where things are legal there that aren't legal here. That it was obvious that it was legal there and not legal here. To walking past places or seeing people on the street. The message that kept coming up in my mind is these are people for whom Jesus gave his life. What are we going to do to help the people of Denver through our missionaries? If you're a follower of Jesus. Or claim to be and you're not engaged with the poor. And you don't know lost people and you're not trying to witness to them about Christ. If you're not supporting missionaries, going on mission trips, praying for missionaries. Then the truth is, scripture teaches you're not really a follower of Jesus. You're a cultural Christian. You want to be part of a church that's going outside the camp. Verse 15. Therefore, through him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that confess his name. Don't neglect to do what is good and to share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. It tells us there that we ought to be people that are continually praising the name of Jesus. And that we ought to be generous with our time, with our talent, with our money. That generosity in the church should be a big, big deal. Verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them since they keep watch over your souls as to those who give an account. So they can do this with their joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Now, this is one of those weird places where I tell you that the scripture says to obey your leaders. And you say, wait a minute, obey. What, what do you mean by obey? God has ordained the church as its instrument on earth. It doesn't mean that the church is led by people who are infallible or perfect. Just that the sovereign God has chosen the church as its instrument to dispense his lot of his grace and his power on earth. 
He put his spirit in the church. He guides you through the church. He counsels you and wards you through the church. He spurs you on to good works through the church. Here's the thing. If you're not connected to the church, you won't have access to those things. Now, when he says obey, he's not talking about me showing up at your house saying, quit your job and give me your car. And you say, yes, sir. He's talking about matters of spiritual direction. He's telling you that God has ordained leaders in your life. And for this church, at this moment, in this time in history, God has ordained me as your pastor. He has ordained Jeff Kelly as an associate pastor of this church. And Alan Searcy, he has, adore, he has ordained pastors in your midst. And in the midst of that, you have consented to the leadership and that you follow our direction as long as it is in Line with what scripture has said, unless you see a very good reason to disagree. Now, let me just say this, okay? What he's basically saying is that in church situations, you give the people that are in charge of leading you the benefit of the doubt. You assume that motives are good unless you can tell that motives are bad. Now, if you ever see me or any of the other leaders of this church in violation of scripture then by all means, withdraw from under their leadership and go somewhere else. When I was in my first church, we had a couple that were dear to us. And about a year and a half in, they'd been very dear to us. About a year and a half in, I made a decision that they did not agree with at all. At all. I got a call about it on Sunday morning as I was walking out the door to go to church. And here's what I'll just tell you as your pastor. I love you. But Sunday mornings are generally not the time to tell me you don't like me at all. Okay. I feel bad enough about myself after the sermon. You don't have to let me know that. All right. And I don't know that you've you, you've ever been on the receiving end of a call like this. But I got I got reamed out over the phone about a decision I had made that I still believe was God's decision for that church. So I said, okay, we're going to meet about it. So we met the next week. They still disagreed with me completely. And they said, what are we going to do about this? And I said, well, here's what I want to tell you. If this is something you're not going to be able to get over, that you can't see how this is what I believe God has called us to do, and I'm following what I feel is God's direction, then you don't need to be a part of our church anymore. Some preachers say, you told them to leave. That's not exactly what I said. But I knew that if... This was going to be an issue. It was not going to get resolved that afternoon. Now, I'm not telling you if you don't like me to leave. Because sometimes they're just personality differences. The point is that I believe, I do believe this. I wouldn't be here if I didn't believe this, that God has called me to this place. And I believe that he's going to call us to do some things sometimes that are going to make me uncomfortable, that are going to make you uncomfortable, that are going to make us uncomfortable. But I promise to you, my desire is never to bring those things to you or to lead us in a direction that I don't believe is God-ordained and biblically based. And saying that, verse 18, is something I ask of each and every one of you. Pray for us. For we are convinced that we have a clear conscience, wanted to conduct ourselves honorably in everything. And I urge you all the more to pray that I may be restored to you very soon. Now his point there is that he wants to be with them, but he's saying, pray for us. I don't think I get it right all the time, but my prayer is that I would be someone that would see God in everything we do. And so I ask you to pray for me.
to pray for my family, to pray for our staff, to pray for their families, to pray for those that God has ordained to be in leadership in this church. That includes not only staff, but includes people that are in lay leadership in places of spiritual leadership. Your Sunday school teacher, your deacons, members of various committees that make decisions in this church, pray for us. And in the midst of that praying, pray that God's will would be done, that his name would be honored, and that our church would do what God has called us to do. Now, here's what I want to tell you, okay? We're going to start a series of new messages next week. We're done with Hebrews as of today. I'm going to end in just a moment. At the end of the service, we're going to officially conclude Hebrews. But we're going to start a brand new series of messages next week. The title of the series of messages is Pulling Together, and I'll give you the image already, is that if there are things that in the future that we must learn to pull together on if we're going to do what God has called us to do. Just like a tug-of-war team has to pull together to be successful, there are areas that we need to pull together as a congregation. And I'm going to bring some things that God has been laying on my heart for the last year. Some things that are going to be challenging for all of us. Some questions that we're going to ask ourselves. Some hypotheticals that we're going to look into each week and ask, are we willing, if this is what it means, to follow God in the next five to ten years? So I want to ask you two things. First of all, I want to ask you to be here. Be here next week and plan on being here every week for the next four. Now for some of you, That's like getting up in the morning. That if you're able to get up in the morning on Sunday, you're here. But for some of you, I'm just asking you to make that a priority. And here's what's going to happen. Immediately upon making that a priority, if you're someone that usually comes a couple of times a month or three times a month, immediately upon making that a priority, somebody's going to call you with an unbelievable offer to be somewhere on a Sunday three weeks from now. Because the enemy doesn't want that to happen. And secondly, I ask that you be praying for me and praying for our church. Next week, in the midst of this, we're also going to kick off a campaign of praying together. Not towards anything, not towards any special offering or giving or any of that kind of thing. Because a lot of times in churches, that's the only time you set aside seasons of prayer. We're just going to pray about the future and direction of our church. And I want you to be here to hear it and to be a part. Let's pray together.